the pitch. Swing and a fly ball, well hit into left field. Going back is Taylor, all the way back towards the wall. It's gone! A two-run homer for Brandon Lau, his second of the night, and the Rays have a 5-0 lead. We have a complete offense, and I know they've been quiet, but we have a lot of confidence in this group that we can be really balanced and have good at-bats and put pressure on pitchers and opposing defenses. Now the delivery, and there's a fly ball. Into center field, Kiermaier going back to the wall, and it's gone, a home run. Corey Seager with his seventh home run of the postseason. The Dodgers move to within two. Playing seven in a row. Um, Fortunately, we got to kind of use different players, and I think the DH certainly helped uh, for some players, um, namely Will Smith. But off day, and then now we play two off. I I think that this old format that we're used to uh, is certainly uh, welcomed by everyone. This is Andy Mazur, the podcast. Some of the sounds there of the World Series, which is approaching game number three. That'll be tomorrow as we tape here today. Brandon Lau, a big game for the Tampa Bay Rays, and uh, Corey Seager almost bringing the Dodgers back. We heard from Tampa Bay Radio and also from the Dodgers Radio Network there, and also, uh, Kevin Cash and Dave Roberts. Welcome in to Andy Mazer, the podcast. I am Andy Mazer. It's been an interesting series so far, kind of a tale of two uh, ways of getting things done. Uh, the Dodgers with the big payroll and the Tampa Bay Rays, kind of that team that's been around and uh, always seems to be competitive in a huge uh, race with the uh, the Yankees in the American League East all season long, and then they get to the World Series. Uh, pretty cool story. Someone who's been covering the World Series for Major League Baseball Network is John Palmarosi, a good friend of the show here. And, uh, John, we appreciate you taking a little time for us here on the off day of the World Series from Globe Life Field. And just give me your thoughts, give me your impressions so far on what you've seen in this World Series 2020. Well, Andy, first of all, thanks for the opportunity to uh, speak with you today. And uh, always love talking Midwest baseball with you. And uh, <laughs> great job all season long uh, on the White Sox games. What an exciting team they were to, to follow all season long. Um, it's been great. Uh, you know, certainly uh, I, I arrived here early part of the month. I covered the, the first round Dodgers Padres uh, as uh, w- what we would call a tier three person. So up, up in the, the higher level of the press box, as you and I were throughout the regular season. And then uh, and then after that, I, I did the one week quarantine period uh, to make sure that, that I was uh, then safe to enter the, the bubble. Uh, so after Game five of the NLCS, I was a, a bubble person, which means I've been uh, you know, tested every day uh, to be able to go to the ballpark and, and staying at the same uh, central location uh, along with all the MLB personnel. So it's been really uh, an incredible experience. The ballpark has been great. Uh, the people here have been outstanding. So uh, really, it's it, it, I would say, Andy, I, I feel a tremendous amount of gratitude to be here. Uh, the people who have made this possible, certainly within baseball and without, just to, to allow us to to operate here and, and, and to play the game. So grateful to have baseball. And I think the players too, Andy, I would say, they seem to have uh, a, a really high level of, of joy uh, just being here. And I know that that may sound uh, obvious, but I think the World Series often has a blend of, of pressure and, and a little bit of anxiety and tension. And certainly we have that during the games. But the players that I've been around and had the chance to interact with here the last few days they just seem really grateful to, to be here. They're, they seem to be having a lot of fun with their teammates. And, and I'm really sensing very little of the, of the tension and pressure, and it's more of just the enjoyment of being here. So I think it's made for a great series so far. I want to get more to the series in a second, but just something you just brought up there, I mean, because I know that the players uh, going into this whole thing were a little concerned because the bubble was going to separate them uh, from their families. They had been separated, I think, a little bit from their families as well. But 
to hear you say that they're, they're, they're feeling a little joy in being there, I guess that sense of relief having some people around them also helps. Yeah, there's no question. And I think as well, uh, you know, part of the bubble has been that, that families have been welcomed to the, to the environment here where players had the option basically the last week of the regular season to welcome their families into the bubble. And even as you know, uh, when the White Sox played, for example, uh, they're against the A's, uh, even before then, there was that bubble towards the end of the regular season where, where you were staying at a hotel and not in your house. So if you wanted your family to be part of that, they had to quarantine for a period of time with you uh, and then travel uh, in, in sort of the secure zone plane where you're only around other people who are in the secure zone. So MLB's done a very good job of, of I think, handling all the security protocols here. It, it has not been easy, as you can imagine. It has not been cheap either. I mean, it, this, this all takes a lot of uh, expense and a lot of effort to keep everybody safe. And, and I really think that the players and MLB, for as, for as you know, tense as the summer was in some respects, I think they realized very quickly that, that to do this, they had to really rely on each other and that their hearts and their minds were in the same place, which was let's try to play this thing as safely as we can. And they did it. And uh, I think they deserve an immense amount of credit. The players, I think, have done a tremendous job adhering to the protocols. They've all been um, – you're at the ballpark. You're seeing them all wearing masks and doing all the, all the appropriate things. So yeah, I think it's been a really, uh, a really heartening time for the sport uh, where we've seen people coming together. And, and I do think, Andy, to have the players' families here has been important and have them with them. And, and of course, during the division series, I know also here at the ballpark, you could see in the field-level suites – the Dodger families and the Padre families that were there even before the doors opened to the public for the NLCS. So you, you did have small groups of fans that were in the bubble that were allowed to be in the stadium. So it, it's, it's been obviously a friends and family kind of year in so many ways in American life. And, and I think that in so many ways that the players have really bonded together in, in a pretty profound fashion, as you certainly saw with the White Sox all season long as well. Yeah, it's pretty funny that you say that too, because uh, our, our microphones that were at the ballparks obviously picked up a lot of the uh, the A's family members who were in suites out in the outfield, and you could hear them plain as day rooting for their rooting for their families. It was pretty cool to hear. No, you're right, and, and we saw the same thing. Uh, the interactions, uh, uh, you know, down the down the the right and left field lines here at the Globe Life Field during that uh, division series round. It was interesting. Kirby Yates uh, and, and his wife, uh, of course, Kirby wasn't able to pitch for the Padres this year in the postseason because of injury, but the Padres relievers brought a cutout of Kirby. And uh, the, the Padres families, the, the, the wives, uh, brought a cardboard cutout of Ashley Yates as his wife uh, there in, in their seating section. So I, we've seen a lot of touches of humanity is what I would say, Andy. I think throughout this, this entire year and in so many different ways as, as we've all gone through this, uh, I think that that humanity, the commonality has, has shined in many ways. And, and I think baseball – um, I, I hope and, and I believe will, will be a great example of that as, as time goes on. And, and uh, I, I just I really think the players, I give them a ton of credit because it's not been easy for them. Um, they've had to t make a lot of sacrifices. Willie Adamas just speaking today about, you know, for, for the players that they have not been able to go out just to, to get a cup of coffee. They have not been able to go out and, and enjoy, enjoy a, a breakfast out at a restaurant or a, or a beer after the game. It's something you just, you just can't do right now in, in terms of what, what you would normally want to do as just as a person, just to kind of relax and enjoy what we're all here to do and enjoy life. So I, I think that they've given up a lot to, to get us to this point. And so uh, I, I've used the word gratitude a couple of times, but I, I really feel that way about what the players have done and what the MLB officials have done to make this possible and the union as well. So I think this is one of those things where uh, let's hope uh, good health continues 
And then in a week, there's a trophy given out. And I think it's going to mean something very special to a lot of people around the game. John Morosi of MLB Network joining us from Globe Life Field as off day in the World Series. It's all tied at one. And let's jump in there because uh, this is a pretty cool little matchup. I think, you know, the, the, the Davids and the Goliaths, so to speak. But when you look at the Rays, can you really think of them as a David? Because they've been there so many times and they find so many creative ways to use their their numbers as far as uh, what their what their payroll is. And Kevin Cash has been famous now for just kind of sticking to his script as far as his, his bullpen and his, and his pitching staff goes. Well, they've been playing 2020 baseball since like 2012 or, or, or maybe 2017 or 2018, depending on how you want to define it. But they've, they've been creative, uh, I think, for a long time. And, and, and in that respect, having to almost determine your pitching plan day by day is nothing new for them. They've been doing this for a long time. The Dodgers, of course, have the resources to, to uh, you know, have more options at their disposal. And as you look at game one and, and I, the comparison I've made during the course of this World Series is that you've got tremendous players on both sides, uh, but the difference is in resources. And, and you think about how game one played out and the winning pitcher was Clayton Kershaw and Mookie Betts did his normal Mookie Betts things. They're like the premium tier, if you will, uh, to use a, like a, a, a television analogy. They're like Clayton Kershaw and Mookie Betts, players that are making more than $25 million a year, they're like the premium tier that, that a team like the Rays simply can't afford. And look, they were the difference in game one. And then game two is more of a collective effort uh, with, with the Rays. Uh, their offense coming alive. Blake Snell outpitching the Dodgers crew of, of, of different uh, openers and relievers that they had. And so we're, we're about where we should be, which is an even series 1-1. I, I do think the Dodgers, I would say this, Andy, that they, they do not quite have the, the same uh, level of advantage that you might expect them to have based on their payroll as it pertains to the rotation. Um, because they have not really managed a Dustin May or a Tony Gonsolin or even a Julio Urias to be a six or seven inning pitcher right now. That's simply not how they've used them. Now it'd be a different situation if they had David Price probably. Uh, and that, that would give them a third classic starter to go with Kershaw and Bueller. But when the Dodgers don't have everybody lined up and, and, and really going with, with good depth into the game, games can look like game two for them, which is not a ton of consistency, not a ton of rhythm. And, and the more relievers you bring in, and John Smoltz has made this point a couple times on the Fox broadcast, the more relievers you have to bring in, the higher chances that somebody's not going to have their sharp stuff in that game. And then once that happens, they got to stay in for three hitters, and, and it changes the rhythm of, 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 the, of the game a lot. So I, I think overall the, the, the Rays are not nearly at the disadvantage that the payroll disparity might suggest, and they're quite comfortable playing this kind of a game. And I'd also add as well, Andy, that the additional days off here in this series – uh, help the Rays. They, they help rust their key bullpen guys. It allows people like Nick Anderson, Peter Fairbanks, Diego Castillo to get the rest they need to be as effective as they can be. So I, overall, I've been uh, very impressed. And I think that the, the way this series has started, to me, this looks much more like a six or a seven game series than a five game series to me right now. There's a couple of different schools of thought, especially, in, and I think the Rays kind of get credit for uh, developing the opener and the, the bullpen game itself. But you know, I, you know, we saw this obviously with the White Sox uh, near and dear to our hearts in, in Chicago with uh, with Game Three of the the A series, and just how weird it can get uh, trying to mix and match and trying to to pick a guy out of the bullpen that you think can give you, uh, you know, more than three batters, obviously, but uh, just the way they kind of go about it. Yeah, you know, and I'm kind of curious from your perspective too, after covering the game for a long time as I have, uh, you, your thoughts on the trend in the game going that direction, where you know you maybe only need 
three quality starters because you can have yourself a bullpen day every once in a while. Well, you're right. And I think, Andy, to me, it's, it, it is a really interesting trend for the game. I, I do miss the days, and maybe we'll get one in game three, by the way, when you've got Walker Bueller and Charlie Morton, two guys with a tremendous playoff track record for both of them. Both of them have ERAs under three as starters in the playoffs, which is a pretty good mark. Uh, that puts them in the top 10, in fact, of the wildcard era. So that's a really good group. That, one that includes, by the way, Orlando Hernandez, uh, because in part of what he did for the White Sox yes. there in 2005. But it's, it's hard for, you know, for me, I, I, you know, when I started coming into the game, my, the first World Series I covered was 2004. And, and so I have good memories of, of these great, uh, you know, dueling battles. I think about Cliff Lee um, throwing a complete game at Yankee Stadium in 2009. Uh, I wasn't at the famed Carpenter Halliday game, but I, but I have great memories of watching it and of watching Chris Carpenter pitch in the playoffs and, and what, what an ace he was for the Cardinals. And so, and, and Burley, what he did for the, for the White Sox. And so, like, there's, there's a certain romance that you and I associate with our earlier years of, of being involved in baseball with these great playoff encounters that involve both pitchers going into the seventh or the eighth or even the ninth. I mean, certainly the Morris Smoltz game is the most iconic of all, uh, at least in, a, in the last 30 years. And, and that's just not how the game is managed anymore. It's just, uh, it, it's, it's hard for teams to go back and, and, and change that, if you will, and, and, and sort of un, unspool that, uh, that yarn that's been created. But I think that right now, Andy, that's just where we're at right now. And it's, it's been an adjustment for all of us. And I think that uh, it would take a pretty titanic shift in the sport to, uh, to undo uh, that, that current mode of, of running pitching. Yeah, and, you know, some teams just honestly can't afford a, a quality third or a fourth starter. They have to depend on guys that, uh, you know, are, are close to uh, 4A, if you will, you know, minor league and, and major league. And I guess it's kind of how you put your team together. And if you're the Tampa Bay Rays and you go into, th- and you go into it looking at it, the fact that you're going to have to spend a little bit more on the bullpen, I think it's probably easier to do that. There, there, there seem to be more arms available than there are anything else at this point. Well, you're exactly right, Andy. And I think that's a very good point. It's a great insight on your part that, that it's probably – cheaper to build your team that way who can who can afford a Clayton Kershaw to bring it back to the point that we discussed a few minutes ago uh, the Rays certainly can't and uh, nor can the Rays afford to sign Garrett Cole as a free agent so if you can't do that the 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 most cost-effective way to to build your club is to make some smart moves They, they traded a top prospect to get Nick Anderson they also acquired Peter Fairbanks they identified him as being someone that they really believed could uh could bring them a lot of value. So it, it really goes back to excellent scouting, excellent data analysis. And I think we're seeing some of the, the brightest front offices out there really understand how to do that. And, and the Rays, certainly, when you think about Randy Rosarena as well on the offensive side, they have done a great job of finding whatever inefficiencies are still out there. They're, they're certainly not as many as there used to be. And it's harder for small market clubs now than ever before because everybody else is, is now keyed into these things that used to be their own exclusive purview if it was the – the A's or the Rays from years ago. Now everybody has the same information and they're at a disadvantage with payroll. And, and it's a very interesting thing. I think it's, a, it's really an incredible triumph for the Rays to be able to get to this point and be in the World Series. John Morosi of MLB Network joining us here. And uh, let's switch gears to talk a little bit about the White Sox because uh, a lot of folks uh, here in town are, are, are curious about uh, who might be the next manager of the White Sox. The, the move to uh, not bring back Ricky Renteria was, was kind of met with uh, some shock, I guess, in some respects. And uh, some maybe saw it coming, but uh, I, I want to get your perspective from the national perspective, I guess, uh, on who you think might be the next guy to, to fill that role. 
Well, Andy, if I had to make a prediction right now, I, I would say that, that A.J. Hinch, because of the familiarity that he's got with Rick Hahn, of course, Rick was uh, long before Rick became a, a White Sox GM. He was a player agent, of course, uh, and uh, he was working for the same agency that represented A.J. 20 years ago. So he's known him for a long time. And uh, when you consider that relationship and you add on top of that what Rick had said about needing to have that championship pedigree of the, of the next manager of the White Sox, it's not a very long list of people. Uh, if, if, if they're going to stick with that, um, with that criteria, that it's got to be someone who's won a World Series effectively or at least gotten there and is available right now, uh, it's, it's not an especially long list. So um, do, I, do I think that Larusa is, is still a possibility? I do. Do I think that Bochi could get a look? Sure. Alex Cora, yes. Um, would they go uh, for a Mike Sosha? Maybe a little bit less likely, but he fits the criteria. So it, it's, a, it's a very interesting uh, decision for them. Clearly, Andy, you and I both know this team is ready to win. They're in a division that when you think about the Indians and, and some of the issues that they're probably going to have with payroll in the years to come, there is a clear opportunity for this team to win it all very soon. Not just win the division, but win the whole thing. And I, I, I get the decision in terms of if, you, if you've got a team that you believe can win the World Series, and you don't think that your manager is is the person to lead them there. I understand that even though it's it's hard to say that it's his fault that they didn't beat the A's, uh, I can understand why the move was made. Um, La Russa, of course, has not managed in nine years. The game has changed a lot in nine years. And the biggest question is, at age 76, how willing is Tony to adapt? Because the sport has probably changed in the last 10 years as much as it has certainly in any decade of my lifetime. And I think that it's – for, for Tony to have that conversation, you're already in the Hall of Fame to to almost put your own legacy back in play by, by getting back in the dugout. I really think it's important for the White Sox to ask Tony and Tony to ask himself if he's truly ready to adapt to the way the game is played, communication, freedoms that players uh, need to have nowadays uh, on, on a variety of matters. I think it's a really important question for them to ask Tony and Tony to ask himself. Could you see a situation playing out where they, they say, okay, we, we want Tony La Russa to, to be our guy, but we're going to hire a young and up-and-coming guy that uh, we really feel like has the, the pedigree and has been around organizations that have won to sit in the, the bench coach chair or to sit at the first base coach chair or wh- wherever he wants to sit, but learn under Tony La Russa, kind of like a little bit of a, a manager in waiting, if you will. Could you, can you see that kind of a thing maybe coming down if Tony La Russa is the guy they decide on? Sure. I think that actually makes a lot of logical sense because when you really look at it, uh, this is not a five-year deal for Tony. This is a, a one, if it happens, it's a one-year or one-plus. Uh, and this is be happening only because of the relationship that goes back 40 years between Tony LaRusso and Jerry Reinsdorf. This is a, a very unique situation. And it almost would be like if if Pat Riley started coaching in basketball again, it's, it's the same kind of thing. They're about the same age. Uh, it's the same sort of question. Like would, would a Pat Riley want to coach again? And, and just the travel 162 games, Andy is a little, as we both know, is a yes. lot of games. And, and uh, it's, it is a grind, especially for someone who cares as much as Tony does. I, so I think that if it's a younger bench coach, uh, someone like a, uh, like a Sam Fold, like a Don Kelly, uh, someone who's who really is on the cusp of being a manager, and if you want to say, listen, we believe this person here is going to manage us in 2021 or 2022. We want them to be here, get to know the team as as the associate 
coach would at a college football program, for example. I remember uh, to use the, the, the analogy, Jimbo Fisher and, and Bobby Bowden at FSU right. years ago, that, that kind of a situation. But I'll, I'll tell you one quick anecdote about Tony that, that, I, that stands out to me in terms of how much he cares about each day and, and how this could be both a blessing and also somewhat problematic. I remember it was spring training years ago, Jupiter, Florida. He was still managing the Cardinals. And this is probably 2010 or 11. And uh, I, you know, I'd, I'd known Tony and talked with him over the years previous to that. At that point in time, I was writing for FoxSports.com. But I just wanted to stick my head in the manager's office, say hello, and, and, uh, and say I'd be around and you know, wish him well. Hopefully we'd catch up later on. And I just – this is probably – 10 o'clock in the morning on a, on a March Monday in, in, in Jupiter, Florida, they were probably playing the Marlins in a spring training game at Roger Dean stadium. And I, I, I stick my head in the, the clubhouse and in, in his office, Hey Tony, how's it going? And he looks at me and he says, I'll let you know in, in six hours, which is when the game would be over. Okay. And he says this in March. Now he certainly says this in, in July and August when you see Tony LaRusso, but he said this in March. And, and by that, I mean to say every game, every pitch of a major league game is sacred to Tony LaRusso. It always has been. And, and so if you, if you're going to hire him and if he's going to take that job and you're going to walk in that clubhouse, trust me, if you walked into Glendale, Arizona on March 1st and you asked him how he would do and how he was doing, he'd tell you, I'll tell you in six hours. He's, he's going to care that much about a, about an early March game against the Dodgers from across the way. That's, that's going to matter to him. And, and so if you're going to do that, and if you're Tony, and if you're the White Sox, and if you're the players, you got to know what you're getting into here. And, and there's a high level of accountability that he expects of everybody. And, and it sounds like that was one of the motivations of, of why, um, why the, the, the White Sox made the change with, with Rick, who we both know is a great baseball guy. Mm-hmm. But it's, it is going to be a really interesting thing. If you bring in Tony, your antenna is up. He doesn't miss a thing. And, and you better be ready, everybody in his orbit, Every minute of every day that you're at the stadium, he is expecting the utmost professionalism from you all the time. And that, that, that makes you win. And it also makes you at times a little stressed out. So it's just, there's a little bit of, there's a little bit of a balance there where everybody's going to have to just get used to a different level of, of intensity all the time. Yeah. I would think uh, from where Rick Hahn sits right now, he's probably looking at this as a situation where this is a desired job because there are a lot of young, young players on this ball club right now. There's a lot of young pitching on this ball club right now. He can be very picky and choosy at this point. That's probably a really nice position to be in as the GM of a ball club. It's the best job out there right now. Uh, with all due respect to my amazing home state of Michigan, it's, and certainly Boston, another wonderful baseball town, but that, that club in Boston has a lot of transition to go through right now, and the Tigers are not as good as the White Sox. <laughs> that's, I mean, that's, that's just plainly obvious right now. So you look around the game and, and what's the most appealing job? I mean, this is this is it. This is a team that is ready to win um, and and it's ready for someone who's going to be able to, to, I think, handle that that bullpen management in a very unique time in the game and also that that player communication and and whether it's inspiration, I don't know if motivation is the right word, whatever it is, but, but really helping this team achieve at its peak. I mean, really, it, it reminds me of, frankly, what the Tigers were when Jim Leland came in. They were a team that was, had the talent but kind of didn't have that last ingredient of, of belief, um, of, of execution in, in the biggest games. And, and it took Jim's really unique style to, to get them over the hump. Now, of course, Jim and Tony are the best of friends. Is, is that the answer for the White Sox here with Tony? Maybe. It, it might be. It may also be A.J. Hinch. 
Uh, it could also be an Alex Cora. But I'm, I'm mentioning people here who have all won World Series and Bruce Bochy, the same thing. Um, this is an incredibly appealing job. It's the best job out there right now. And if you want to be a manager of any team anywhere in the world, really. And uh, so I expect that uh, Rick Hahn can take his pick of anybody. And I think Rick Hahn knows that he can take his pick of anybody. One of those guys on this ball club that uh, will be so special to manage is Jose Abreu. And uh, you and I have talked during the season about his candidacy for the most valuable player. He got another award today as the most outstanding player uh, in the American League. I mean, I just think that it's a logical cause and a logical case that next will be that AL MVP award. I think he did pretty much everything you can do to just kind of secure that award. Well, he certainly is part of the mix. And, and uh, uh, you know, I, I was I was a voter this year and gave it gave everything obviously a lot of thought. I, I can't reveal what I yeah, what I chose. Don't. <laughs> uh, that's, uh, I'm getting trouble able to do that. <laughs> exactly. I, I, I cannot run a file of the BBWA, but certainly uh, um, he, he put together a tremendous resume and, and he was a lot of fun to watch. And, and the leadership component was real. I think that was something that we all had to think about a lot as you, you filled out your ballot and really thought about it and, and who who the true MVPs were and, and uh, on each team and each divisional race. Uh, what that value looked like and, and uh, the production, but also the off the field and, and positional flexibility, how much he performed and improved as a first baseman. So this was probably, Andy, one of the toughest ballots I've ever had. Obviously, it's a unique year because of the number of games that, were, that we had played and so it's a smaller sample size overall, which meant that there was less time for, for the truly most valuable players to distinguish themselves. So it was a tough ballot. I was lucky to have one this year. I felt grateful to be able to, to cast the ballot and certainly uh, – I, I, I spent a lot of time thinking about a lot of White Sox players uh, with having the MVP ballot and also the Rookie of the Year ballot. I had a lot, a lot to think about, Andy, uh, when it came to the White Sox and certainly paid a lot of close attention to them during the course of the year. So it, it's a team that I know I really enjoyed watching perform during the course of the season, and it's a team that I'm excited to watch flourish because I, I really hope that for the, for the White Sox fans on the south side, this is going to be a team that hopefully sticks together for a while. And I think one of the most important things Rick Hahn did a year ago was make sure that he found a way to keep Jose Abreu, uh, obviously, on a longer-term contract. Definitely uh, the case. And uh, you know, if you want to tell me later who you voted for, that's fine. We'll, we'll, just, we'll stop the recording and you can tell me. And I, and I swear I won't tell anybody. <laughs> I'm, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I would never put you in that position. Hey, quick, <laughs> quickly, before we wrap it up, uh, I know you're, uh, you're a, a hockey guy, as, as I am. And uh, you know, it was interesting to hear the news this week that, uh, that Doc Emmerich, uh, has decided to hang things up as a uh, as a broadcaster for the National Hockey League, almost 50 years of broadcasting. And, I mean, I just uh, – I enjoyed that guy so much. And selfishly, I would wish that he would come back and, and stay until uh, the day they wheel him out of there. But uh, I get it, and I, I respect it, and, and I hope he has a great career. But, uh, boy, what a, what a treasure he has been to, to be around. That voice, Andy, uh, and certainly uh, we in Michigan are, are, are proud to claim him. Uh, you know, the fact that he lives in Michigan uh, year-round, uh, and travels from Michigan for all of his assignments. Uh, I know it's a great point of pride for us uh, in, in our state. And, and just as someone who's part of the hockey community, just his his graciousness, his his joy for the game, his enthusiasm for it, um, I, I think has been really a great gift to everybody who, who loves hockey in our country. Uh, he's been someone who's, whose voice has narrated some of the uh, some of the best moments that I can recall, uh, Olympics and, and, uh, and Stanley Cup finals, Stanley Cup playoffs, big games that, that the – the Wings and Blackhawks played. I remembered uh, the, probably the, la the last truly great hockey game in the playoffs that, that 
they ever had at Joe Louis Arena was that game six between the Blackhawks and the Wings in 2013. Yep. I remember that Doc was there. Uh, of course, the Blackhawks won that game to force the game seven, which they won on, on the Seabrook goal uh, at the United Center. So just, uh, but and of course, Doc was calling all those games in that series. And, and I remember seeing him in the press box that day. I was every now and then, Andy, as you know, I, I'll sneak over to the hockey side whenever yes. I can. And I was, <laughs> I was, I was at that game. And I remember writing a column, a quick aside that, uh, that I remember I was in the Blackhawks dressing room after that game was over, and, and I had looked up, I think it was back to the 60s, I believe, maybe even earlier than that, the last time the Wings and Hawks had played a Game 7 in Chicago. And I remember I mentioned whatever the year was to Taves, and his answer was just like this big sigh, like, whoa, it's been a while. And, of course, it was just a great series between these two great original six teams, and it was a, that was a pretty cool. I was never forget Jonathan saying that. But it was it was, to me – for for Doc, I remember I, the first time I met him, I was I think I was still either in college or just out of college. I think it was during the lockout, so so oh four oh five, and Doc was in Albany to call the ECAC tournament. Uh, so I I had covered college hockey as a as a student, and, and and college hockey has a special place in my heart. So I, I was there covering that tournament, and I remember seeing Doc, and he was uh, going around the the rink there in, in Albany talking with coaches and players and getting all of his notes for the tournament. And of course, here's someone who had called the Cup final by then. Lord knows how many times. And, and yet during the lockout, just having a college game to call and being there uh, was special to him. And, and he, he was not going to in any way rest on his laurels of saying, oh, I'm Doc Emmerich. I could just show up on the day of the game and call a perfect game and no one would know the difference. He, he did the legwork. He was taking the, the time to get to know these college players and really tell the stories. And, and that left a huge impression on me about And you know, you and I both know that those, you can always tell the broadcasters who care deeply about their craft, it might be one note that they get in during one stoppage of play in the second period, uh, but he cares to get it right. The pronunciations he cares about, the stories of where the players are from, uh, the great list of, uh, as we've seen, the, 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 the synonyms for the different verbs that he uses. Uh, <laughs> you know, you know wh wh whatever. I can't even list them all, and it would, it would be almost disrespectful if I tried to, but just that, that great list. Of, we've, we've all seen it, you know, of, of the different synonyms he's got for, for, for passing the puck along or whatever it might be. Just a, a wordsmith, a, a true ambassador for the game, and someone who has both been a credit to the craft of broadcasting and also a credit to the sport that he's called, which I think for people like you and me, Andy, is, is, is the greatest compliment that you could ever pay. There's someone that, that has heightened the enjoyment of the sport, has moved the sport forward, has grown the game, and has honored the profession that we, that we all share, which is, is pretty special. So I, I think he's, he's someone whose voice uh, has been a treasure for me, and I know for you as well, and someone who uh, – leaves a legacy of, of just a great respect that he's given to the players and also uh, enjoyment to all of us. And, and someone who's, I think, represented the sport and, and his network's always with a tremendous amount of class. You should also get a ton of respect for continuing to be a Pittsburgh Pirates fan. That's true. And, and of course, he did that uh, because he had heard the call of Bob Prince uh, years right. ago, and, and he has always maintained that connection. And, and I know a couple of different times uh, called some spring training names uh, there for, for the Buccos. Uh, I know uh, a couple of different times uh, while it worked out in his schedule. So I, I know that he, again, had that assignment and took that with a lot of uh, seriousness as well to learn that. But just what an incredible voice. And, and, and you could just tell the way that, that the players – respect him and in the last couple of days just how many of them have, have expressed their thoughts on on social media it reminds me certainly of the great bob cole as well in canada uh, we've had two just titans of the game uh retiring in the span of a couple of years of each other and and uh, i think that you know doc and and bob cole both their their voices are, are the soundtracks for so many great moments that you and i have watched in the spring and in the early days of summer and throughout of course throughout the winter as well 
but just those great playoff games. And I remember actually a quick thought on Bob Cole. I saw Bob Cole before a game seven that I also sort of swooped in on to cover. I think it was the Penguins and the Rangers. And I said, I saw him in the, in the and I think it was the Penguins dressing room before, like after the morning skate. And I, and I just like so excited to be like in the presence of Bob Cole. And I said, Bob, and probably not quite that excitedly, but I said, you know, Bob, well, you know, what, what do you think we'll see tonight? And he just looks at me like, first of all, like who the hell is this American baseball writer? It's, it's second of all, it's second of all, he just kind of says, well, uh, that's what we're here to find out. Basically saying like, like, don't get too far out of yourself, kid. Like, just like, let's just have fun and like watch, like watch the darn game, okay? Like, well, that's what we're here to find out. I mean, he, he, I'm sure he didn't know me from Adam. It was just a pretty funny moment, and I'll never forget just that that moment of just kind of saying, well, we're just we're not going to worry about what's going to happen. We're just going to describe it as it comes. And I think that uh, Doc Emberg certainly has had some of those same traits as, as the great Bob Cole as well. Amen to that. We could probably do another podcast just about hockey because you and I uh, enjoy the sport so much and we have this nice little healthy rivalry too, Blackhawks and Red Wings. Uh, unfortunately, the Red Wings went to the Eastern Conference. You don't get to see them that much. I know. And, and that, to me, honestly, Andy, that was probably the, the, one, the one downside of, of, of the realignment. I think overall, I'm a big fan of it. I think that the, seeing the Wings play against the Leafs and the Habs uh, is great for me. It's something that I think should have been happening a lot more often than it was. So, uh, I think on measure and, and also having just better travel for the wings in, in general, you think about all those years and really it's pretty remarkable. And the Hawks have lived, lived the same thing. I mean, when you think about all those Chicago playoff runs, how many of them included a series against the Ducks or San Jose or the yep, Kings Vancouver. and all those different cross country. Yeah, exactly. A lot, a lot of long flights. So I think that the Blackhawks now are still kind of um, enduring that, which the wings have had for so long, but I, I think overall, uh, overall better to have the wings in the Eastern conference. I think it's the, the rivalries are a bit more natural. But, uh, but it, the one, honestly, Andy, to me, the one downside is just those, those two great sweaters uh, on the ice together. Just I, I miss seeing them in the playoffs all the time. And hopefully, uh, hopefully, hopefully it happens again because if, that, if that's the case, it means that, it, that, that both have done something well and, and reached the cup final if, if that's the case. And those are games that we'll have to watch together somehow, somewhere. Uh, we're going to make that happen, Andy, no, yes. no, no matter what. Socially distance, whatever we have to do, we're going to make that happen. <laughs> you got it. Hey, John, thanks so much. And uh, appreciate you taking some time there on the off day of the World Series. And it's uh, great to catch up with you. Andy, great job all season long. It was just tremendous to hear your voice on, on some great major league games again. You do a fantastic job. And uh, always enjoy catching up with you, my friend. All right, John, thanks so much. Appreciate your time one more time there from Globe Life Field in Arlington, Texas. Game three of the World Series coming up tomorrow as we tape this broadcast here on Thursday, October the 22nd. That's going to put a wrap on this edition of Andy Major the Podcast. I want to let you know, too, that uh, if you go to my main page uh, at anchor.fm, you actually can leave me voicemails so we can answer here on the podcast itself. So uh, go ahead and do that if uh, if you get an opportunity and – you can uh, find the page. I think you can if you just search uh, the Andy Mazur podcast there, and you can leave me a voicemail and uh, listen to some of them. And uh, some of them might actually make a little segment uh, on this podcast as we move it forward. So uh, go ahead and do that and leave me a voicemail message, and we'll uh, try to answer as many of those here on the uh, podcast as we possibly can. Big thanks once again to John Morosi of MLB Network and also of Fox Sports for taking some time on the off day of the World Series between Games 2 and Game 3. That's going to wrap it up for our podcast here this week. I'm Andy Mazur. Once again, thanks for listening, and we will talk to you next time. Have a great one.